Thank you to our music team. Appreciate you. The children can be dismissed at this time. Let me ask you all, if you would please, to open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 42 to 50. Our passage begins in the middle of Jesus' teaching in rebuke to John's tribalism. And so I want to begin reading in verse 38, Mark 9, 38. But as I mentioned, we'll study Mark chapter 9, verses 42 to 50 together, where we see Jesus continuing to explain what authentic discipleship looks like. John said to him, teacher... We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward." Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it will be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time where we get to study your word together. We thank you that your word has been given to us as a gift. Help us now to treat it as such. And not just like any other book, but a book that contains the words of God. Living words. True words. Words that we can bank our lives on. In fact, words that we get warning about, if we don't bank our lives on, we will be thrown into hell. Lord, this is a striking passage and a strong teaching that you gave to your disciples. We pray that the power of it would strike us, that the threats would be heard loudly and clearly today by us that we would take this passage and take our own posture before you and our own living before you deadly serious. That we would treasure you, Jesus, more than we treasure anything else. So that anything, no matter what it is, that causes us to sin would be radically removed from our lives. Lord, you did not lay out an easy path to be followed. In fact, you tell us that the path of life is hard and narrow. But we've come to recognize that it's entirely worth it. That you alone give life. And just as Peter says, where else could we go? For you alone have the words of life. Help us now to treasure your words together, Lord. Help us to be faithful. Pray that your word and your spirit would do the necessary work in our hearts that would make us be convinced of the authenticity of our own discipleship and make us be convinced that living for you, no matter how hard it is, no matter what suffering might come, is entirely worth it. We believe what you say, Lord. The man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
In early 2018, an art gallery in the south of France discovered that it had a major problem. You see, more than half of the paintings which it displayed turned out to be forgeries, counterfeits, fakes, frauds. It was first discovered by an art historian named Eric Forcada when he noticed that in these paintings, supposedly painted by the featured artist, who's French and therefore his name I cannot pronounce, It was discovered by Eric Forcada that in these supposedly authentic paintings were buildings that did not exist when this artist died in 1922. You've got an artist who died in 1922 and you've got buildings that existed later after that and all of a sudden somehow these buildings ended up in the painting of the artist that died before they were ever even built. So pretty soon, they put together a team of experts, and they discovered that, sure enough, their gallery was filled with 82 out of 140 fraudulous paintings, counterfeits, fakes. The museum had spent what is the equivalent of about $170,000 over the course of 20 years in collecting these paintings, and yet it turned out that over half of them were fake. It teaches us a very important principle. In In a world where forgeries and counterfeits are possible, it is absolutely necessary that we be able to test for authenticity. We need to know how to separate the fake from the real, the counterfeit from the authentic. That principle is certainly true in the art world, but it's even more vital in Christianity. How many people have prayed a prayer with a well-meaning Bible teacher? Or how many people have asked Jesus into their hearts, a phrase which you may be surprised to know, does not actually appear in the Bible. And yet, having prayed a prayer or asked Jesus into their hearts, they live as though Jesus has no authority over their lives. As if their professed faith in Jesus Christ actually makes no recognizable difference in the way that they live their lives. This is why we don't just need to test artwork for authenticity, but we need the Bible and we need the Holy Spirit to test us for authenticity, to test our discipleship so that we can recognize whether or not it's a counterfeit or authentic. Revivals are a work of God Revivalism is man's attempt to counterfeit a work of God. From revivalism has come all those ideas about just praying a prayer, just asking Jesus into your heart, playing music that would manipulate the emotions of others, gathering little children together and threatening them with hell so that you would scare them into believing Jesus. Jesus is not pleased with such counterfeits. And as he continues to teach his disciples here in Mark chapter 9, you remember his focus is now directly aimed at the disciples. He's no longer looking to the crowds. He's no longer looking to Galilee anymore. He's focused on teaching his disciples because he wants them to know what discipleship is and means and what it will look like if they follow him. And so as he does this, he lays out for them what authentic discipleship looks like, what authentic Christianity looks like. To be a Christian is to be a disciple. And so in our passage today, then, we find three expressions 
of authentic discipleship which help us to test our own claims of discipleship. My hope and my prayer is that you would not be overly discouraged in a way that would crush you and leave you in that position of being crushed as we walk through this passage and as we apply these tests to our own heart. But my prayer is that you would be crushed in a certain way. Crushed in a way that would lead you to realize that it is only in Jesus Christ that you will find anything good. Crushed in a way that leads you to repentance. As Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 7, Not to be grieved with a worldly grief that leads to death, a wallowing in how bad you feel about your sin, but to be grieved with a godly grief that leads you to repentance. To recognize, perhaps, you may have clung on to a false understanding of discipleship, but the Savior still stands, arms open wide, for anyone who will repent of their sins and believe the gospel. And so as we apply these These three tests then to test the authenticity of our own discipleship. It's essential that we think clearly. Not about what I say. Not about what any other teacher who has ever taught you or parent who has ever parented you would say. But we need to hear it straight from the mouth of Jesus, don't we? How do you test authentic discipleship, authentic Christianity? You go to the source of true Christianity, the Christ himself. And as we hear these, this teaching straight from the mouth of Jesus, we learn to understand what it is to possess an authentic faith in Jesus and to walk in authentic discipleship as we follow Jesus. So here we have three expressions of authentic discipleship that help us to test our own. The first one we see in verse 42. In verse 42, Jesus teaches us to have a deep concern for the souls of other Christians. A deep concern for the souls of other Christians. Jesus lays out a problem in the first part of this passage. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... And then he lays out a punishment for the one who would cause that problem. It, is, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Strong words from our Savior, right? And yet notice where it's sandwiched in the middle of. Jesus is still explaining to John and, and the rest of the disciples through John of the danger of stopping someone who was ministering in the name of Jesus just because they weren't following us, according to John's words. And so in verse 41, he gave the reward for blessing someone and helping someone. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And then here in verse 42, he gives the punishment for one who would hinder a fellow believer. He calls the fellow believer here one of these little ones who believes in me. Now there's a couple possibilities that Jesus could be talking about. You remember from last week, Jesus was most likely inside Peter's house where this teaching is happening. He sits down. Probably one of Peter's children comes into the room and Jesus says, hey, come here and illustrates what he was talking about in the, in the humility he requires of the one who would follow him by pointing to this little child. And so the child served as an illustration, but it doesn't seem like it's just causing a child to sin or to stumble that brings this punishment. But instead, what Jesus is doing is saying that his followers are so precious to him They're like his own dear children. So who are these little ones who believe in Jesus? Christians. Ones who, contrary to what the disciples were arguing about, seeing who's the greatest, ones who have embraced the childlike faith that Jesus 
requires, and instead of seeing themselves as the greatest, see themselves as the least, the servants of all, because of the one who served all by his death and resurrection. What does it mean then to cause them to sin or to stumble? Some of your translations may uh, take this as saying, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. In fact, if you're like, If you have the ESV translation, you'll see down in the footnote that the Greek actually refers to a word that is often translated as stumble. Sin is a different Greek word, but this is the type of sin that would ultimately cause someone to stumble and therefore fall away from following Jesus. Turn back to Mark chapter 4 with me for a minute. Jesus has actually used this word, scandalizo, where you can hear the English word scandal. If anyone scandalizes someone that follows Jesus, it'd be better for you to wear cement shoes and to be thrown off the Brooklyn Bridge. In Mark chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, Jesus is explaining the parable of the seeds. And there he's explaining the, this certain seed in verse 16. He says, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. So by appearances, by looks, it seems like they hear the gospel. They receive it with joy. They're so glad to know Jesus. They're walking with Jesus. But notice verse 17. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. You know what the word fall away is? The very same word that Jesus uses in Mark chapter 9. Immediately they sin, immediately they stumble. So back to Mark chapter 9, what is Jesus talking about when he says, if you cause one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble or to sin? He's talking about if you ever do anything that leads a fellow Christian to no longer follow Jesus, there's a serious consequence for such a thing. Why does Jesus go there right now? What had John just done? John had just saw a man casting out demons in the name of Jesus, and it worked. And he reports back to Jesus that we tried to stop him from casting out demons because he wasn't following us. And Jesus says, no, 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 don't stop him. Don't stop him. We can assume then if Jesus says don't stop him, that the man was not a fraud. He was not a fake. He was a genuine disciple of Jesus. He just wasn't part of the 12. But John thought, well, he doesn't wear our jersey. He's not on our team. He's not in our tribe. He's not in our group. And so he can't do that. That's our job. That's why God put us here. That's why Jesus chose us. And so this arrogance that first manifested itself in arguing about who is the greatest then manifests itself by putting down a fellow believer just because he's not one of us. That's why Jesus goes there. Because John was in danger of doing this very thing. One of the sons of thunder whose booming temper got him in trouble multiple times in the gospel, but by God's grace, who later became the apostle of love. Proof positive that if you have an anger problem and you come to Jesus, he'll fix it if you follow him. But if you claim to follow him and yet hold on to your anger problem, it'd be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. Because a true disciple, just as Bob read from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, understands that when you sin against a fellow believer and cause them to stumble, you're actually sinning against the one who died for them. 
You see, it's not just an interpersonal problem. It's not just a church problem. It's a God problem. Jesus could not speak any more strongly about this, could he? What Jesus is saying is that we must never do anything that would cause another Christian to no longer follow Jesus. So to cause one of these little ones who believes in me to sin or to stumble means to do something that would cause a Christian who believes in Jesus, one of these little ones who believes in me, to say, you know what, I'm done with Christianity. I'm done with the church. Those people can't get it together. I don't believe what they say. I'm done. Now notice, Jesus doesn't spell out specifically what that would be, does he? He gives you the principle, don't cause another believer to stumble, but he doesn't say what you would do to cause them to stumble, does he? In context, John is doing the very thing. Thankfully, that exorcist serving in Jesus' name didn't stumble and fall away, but kept going. He was strong enough in his faith to keep going. But how many people have been turned away from Christ because a bully in the church demanded his or her own way without regard for the rest of the body? How many people have been turned away from Christ because a gossip turned a prayer request into the talk of the town? Something that was shared in confidence and yet someone with loose lips let it slip. How many people have been turned away from Christ because a slanderer who opened their mouth only when they wanted to voice their disagreement with the church... And someone heard it and finally said, you know what, those Christians, they're just like everybody else. How many people have been turned away from Christ because a complainer who thought it was their duty to point out everything that was being done wrong, but never made a positive contribution to the cause of making disciples? If you've been in the church a while, you know people like that, don't you? Someone who loves to say what's wrong with everything, but who never actually makes disciples of Jesus Christ. I was just talking with a friend recently who's a a pastor in a different state. He and his wife are going through a, a really difficult and trying time because a couple in the church who's not particularly godly, though they of course think themselves to be godly, Quite honestly, a couple in the church who's known by the entire community to really not be good Christians continually slanders this man's wife and now tells this man, you're not fit to be an elder. Doesn't have a good biblical reason, but he says, you're not fit to be an elder. And the man, every time he says, I'd love to hear, I'd love to hear what your charge is, you know, I, if, if, that's really not, if that's really true, then, then you're right. I don't want to be an elder. But instead of actually giving a biblical argument, the man just yells in anger every time he talks to him. But do you know what that same couple is not doing? They're not serving in the church anywhere. They don't share the gospel with people. They don't help someone follow Jesus in a positive way. They don't contribute to building up the body in any way. Instead, this couple for years and years, even when we used to live there, was known as detractors for constantly putting stumbling blocks in front of people rather than building up the body of Christ. Friends, we need to hear Jesus loudly and clearly. If that's you, you're not a disciple of Jesus, no matter how much you think you are. Jesus lays out the punishment crystal clear, doesn't he? 
it would be better for you, if that is you, to have a great millstone hung around your neck and thrown into the sea. Not just a millstone, but a great millstone, the kind of millstone that was so big only a donkey could move. Jesus is being, uh, he's using a word picture to, to make it clear that it's better for you to die a brutal drowning than it is for you to cause another Christian to stumble. And he's going to spell out what that means in the next few verses. What it means is if that's the way that you live the Christian life, you are going to hell. That's what it means. No matter how much you think you're Christian, you're going to hell. Isn't that what he's saying? But here's the good news for anyone who would be found to be guilty of such a thing. Jesus forgives. Jesus forgives. If you would repent right here, right now, Jesus would forgive you. And he would change your wicked heart. And instead of being one who constantly devours the body, you would be one who constantly pours into the body at your own self-sacrifice, which just so happens to be the very thing Jesus says you must do in order to follow him. So imagine you did something that caused your punishment. We wouldn't do this. We've developed more supposedly humane ways of killing people in punishment. But imagine you did something and the judge said you're guilty. We're going to cement your feet with blocks of concrete. We're going to take you to the Pacific Ocean and we're going to chuck you in. And that would be better for you than the thing that you did. It's really even hard to comprehend, isn't it? But it's exactly what Jesus is saying. So if you want to be an authentic disciple of Jesus, you must have a deep concern for the souls of other Christians. That is real Christianity. That is authentic Christianity. But then secondly, if you want to be an authentic disciple of Jesus Christ, you must not only have a deep concern for the souls of other Christians, But you must have a serious commitment to killing your sin. A serious commitment to killing your sin. In verses 43 to 48, this is laid out clearly for us. Let me just make a textual comment. Some of your Bibles, like mine, don't have a verse 44 and a verse 46. Others of your Bibles have verse 44 and verse 46 in brackets. That's because the earliest manuscripts that we have of the Gospel of Mark don't include verses 44 and verse 46. Therefore, they really don't belong there. But when the King James Bible was translated, they were put there as a duplication of verse 48. You'll notice that they just repeat verse 48. And so a a scribe making a copy must have decided that they needed to even out these sayings of Jesus and just duplicate verse 48 in the other two sayings. It changes nothing about the translation. It changes nothing about the teaching at all. But that's why you don't hear me reading verses 44 and 46. So now that that's out of the way, we need to have a serious commitment to killing our sin. Again, Jesus lays out the problem. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Rather than teaching the disciples about the danger that exists outside of them in their actions toward other Christians, Jesus now places even more teaching on the danger that lies inside of them. To their own temptations. To what would cause them to stumble 
and to fall away from following Jesus Christ. You see, there's a danger that every one of us carries with us all the time, and his name is not Satan. Its name is flesh. Now, sure, Satan hounds you and wants to take you out like a prowling lion seeking someone to devour, but he's not the only threat to your soul. You're also a threat to your soul. Your flesh is a threat to your soul. Your heart is a threat to your soul. And so the problem's not just on the outside, it's on the inside as well. So Jesus gives some symbolism here. He doesn't literally mean if your hand causes you to sin, lop it off. Though there are stories where people have done that. I had a professor in Bible college whose next door neighbor was, was a psychiatric patient And one day, he saw the ambulance pull up and the man being carted out because he read this and he cut off his hand literally because he thought that would make him stop sinning. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about self-mutilation. He's talking about the mortification of sin, as John Owen called it. So the Puritan John Owen was famous for saying, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You see, sin is not neutral. Satan wants to devour you, but so does sin. Sin wants to absolutely destroy you. So the question is, will you go to battle against sin, or will you be defeated by sin? So if anything causes you to sin, the hand is symbolic for the things that you do, the feet Foot is symbolic of where you go, and the eyes seem to represent what you see and therefore take in to your mind. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 22 to 23 about the eye, the eye is the lamp of the body. But if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? You see, Jesus uses this extreme language of amputation to make it crystal clear that we need to have a serious commitment to holiness, a serious commitment to dealing with what causes us to sin. He tells us what to do, cut it off, cut it off, tear it out, get rid of it entirely and radically. Don't try to coddle it, get rid of it. You see, sin is not an animal that can be tamed. Your sin is not a puppy dog that you can chain up outside and play with every once in a while. It's a wild lion that will eat you as soon as he gets a chance. Jesus has already said in, back in Mark chapter 7, verses 20 to 23, that the problem is not outside of us, but inside of us. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And James, as he traces out the, the concept and the, the process of temptation, says in James 1, 14 and 15, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. See, John is saying or James is saying the very thing that, same thing that Jesus was saying, that there's a, there's a component inside of you that still desires wickedness. And what Jesus is saying then is if you allow yourself to go around anything outside of you that stirs up that desire for wickedness, you're going to go to hell. Isn't that what he says is the punishment? And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. 
It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus is saying, if you are aware of something that causes you to stumble, causes you to sin, stirs up your temptation and you go after it, and you don't cut it off radically, if you don't eliminate it from your life, where are you going to go? Hell. And it's not going to work for you to get to the gates of hell and tell Satan, hey, I've got a pass. I'm with Jesus. No. You're not actually with Jesus because you didn't manifest the fruits of righteousness that Jesus demands, that real repentance produces. See, this is not a works righteousness, cut off your sin and you'll go to heaven. This is the fruit of real righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ. If you really have been changed by the gospel, then you really will have a serious concern for holiness. You really will hate your sin and do anything, make any sacrifice possible so that you will not go to hell, but instead go to heaven. Notice who it is that's threatening with this. It's Jesus. The word hell is the Greek word Gehenna. It refers to the Valley of Hinnom in the Old Testament. It was the place where just outside of Jerusalem, the wicked Israelites who had adopted paganism would set fires and place their babies into the fires as a sacrifice to the god Moloch. And it's said that in that place, it later became called the Valley of Drums. You know why? Because to cover up the screams of the infants burning, they would play drums so that you wouldn't hear them. God has always hated the death of children, inside or outside of the womb. That place later became Jerusalem's landfill. And so, in Jesus' day, they can smell the burning trash coming from Gehenna. And it became a picture, a living picture, they would see every single day for hell. The fire never went out there because they were constantly throwing trash. And so Jesus is saying that if you do not get rid of what causes you to sin, you're going to end up thrown into Gehenna, into hell. And notice what he says the alternative is. It's better for you to enter life with one eye or one hand or one foot than to be thrown into hell completely intact. So life and the kingdom of God are references to what we would probably call heaven. Jesus lays out two paths, hell or life and the kingdom of God or heaven. One of two places you'll go. And according to Jesus here, the, the, the fate of your soul depends on how you treat what causes you to stumble. One commentator says the horrible imagery of these verses is intended as a sober admonition to disciples now rather than simply as a prediction of the future. The architectural plans of eternity are being drawn by the behavior of disciples today. The architectural plans of eternity are being drawn by the behavior of disciples today. Verse 48, he continues, is a warning against rebellion against God and a summons to faith in the present and especially to the ridding of whatever hindrances and impediments would prevent one from entering true life in the kingdom. Gehenna is used in the scriptures 12 times. 11 of them, it's used by Jesus. Jesus believed and believes in hell. 
It's not a fictional place designed to scare little children. It's a place where you will go if you hold on to your sin. I've counseled many people, men, who struggle with pornography. Though they don't often struggle, they just give in full force. And every time I counsel them, I tell them, and typically now it's either on your computer or usually nowadays it's on your phone. And of course, you know, you have apps you can install on your phone and you've got covenant eyes, all things that are very helpful, but the addict knows how to get around those things because they're easy to get around if you know how. Out of all the men that I've counseled that have dealt with the sin of pornography, guess how many took my advice to completely get rid of their smartphone? Only one. Every other one says, well, I, I need it for, I need it to get on the internet. I need it so that I can pay my bills. But the one who got rid of it is thriving with his family in holiness right now. He's not here, by the way. Some of you are going, oh, who is it? (laughs) He's not here. Only one took my word seriously, and I told him, Jesus says if anything causes you to sin, cut it off. So let me ask you, is there anything in your life that's causing you to sin and you're tolerating it? Because if you don't stop tolerating it and you don't cut it off, according to Jesus, you will go to hell. You've probably heard of the entertainers Sigmund and Roy. They're famous for their their shows. Sigmund and Freud, or no. Siegfried. Siegfried and Roy, there we go. That's what it says here. I just misread it. You've heard of Siegfried and Roy, the famous entertainers who put on shows with their, or used to put on shows with their lions and their tigers. You maybe remember back in, I think it was 2008, when Roy, the one who was the handler of the tigers, he had adapted this system that he called affection conditioning. So he would raise these tigers from infancy and for the first year of their life, he would sleep with them so that they would be used to him. That was what he called affection conditioning. The whole idea was to gain the trust of the wild animal so that he could then control the wild animal. And it worked for a very, very long time until one night when they were performing their show, just as they had done thousands of other times, And one 380-pound white tiger got distracted by someone in the crowd. And rather than staying on course and going with the act that this tiger himself had done so many times, the tiger started to make a beeline to the front row. Now, all they had to restrain these tigers was just a small little chain that Roy held in his hand. 380-pound tiger versus maybe 200-pound man, we know who's going to win that. And so Roy throws himself in front of the tiger so that the tiger doesn't hop down in the front row and find a tasty treat sitting there. The tiger instead grabbed Roy's arm with its paw, though you can imagine what the claws of a 380-pound tiger would be like, grabbed his wrist, and he continued to yell, release, release, and with the other arm that was free, he had a wireless microphone, and he kept hitting the tiger on the head, release, release, and finally the tiger released, but you can imagine what it looked like. He's trying to rip his arm out of the paw of this tiger, and so when the tiger finally releases, he falls backwards. Immediately, the tiger was on top of him, clutched its powerful jaws around his neck, just like he would do in the wild, even though this tiger had never lived in the wild, and drug him 30 feet off stage with most likely the desire to eat him. In the process, 
It tore his carotid vein and somehow Roy lived. They sprayed the tiger with fire extinguishers and that didn't work so they started hitting the tiger with the fire extinguishers and eventually the tiger let go and went back to its cage and and like I said, Roy lived. But Roy learned a very important lesson that night. You cannot tame a wild beast no matter how much you think you can. Friend, that's your sin. You can't tame your sin. If there's anything you're hiding, anything you're foolishly thinking that you're tamed, that you have tamed, guess what? It's coming for you. It's going to grab you by the neck if you don't cut it out. It's going to drag you around if you don't cut it out. Sin is not to be coddled with. It is to be cut out. You cannot claim to love the righteous one and yet live in unrighteousness. You cannot claim, you cannot hold on with one hand to the Savior and with the other hand to your sin and expect that you're going to go to heaven to see the Savior. It doesn't work. Sin's natural instinct is to destroy you. The question is, will you destroy it before it destroys you? And that's the second mark of authentic discipleship. If we want to be an authentic disciple of Jesus, we must first have a deep concern for the souls of other Christians. We must have a serious commitment to killing our sin. And finally, we must bear the sufferings of Christ while doing good. We must bear the sufferings of Christ while doing good. Verses 49 and 50 give you what seem to be some confusing concepts from Jesus, but I hope to be able to explain them to you. Verse 49, Jesus says, for everyone will be salted with fire. To us, that sounds really weird. Salted with fire, what in the world does that mean? But to them, their minds would have immediately been drawn to the sacrificial system. Leviticus chapter 2 verse 13 says, you shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. So to them, this is language of sacrifice. They know that sprinkling with salt, immediately their minds go to, oh yeah, that's what we do every time we offer a sacrifice to God. And so Jesus here is talking about offering yourself as a sacrifice to God. Or like Paul says in Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So Jesus says to his disciples, you're all going to be salted with fire. Salt, sacrifice, what's fire? You remember who is giving, most likely giving Mark his content for this gospel? It's Peter. Peter liked to explain the sufferings and the trials and the persecutions that Christians would go through by using the phrase fire. First Peter 1, 6 and 7, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Or 1 Peter four twelve to 13, Peter just says it even more explicitly. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter is saying, you're going to be persecuted. If I have suffered, or Jesus is saying, you're going to be persecuted. If I have suffered, you will suffer. And Jesus is saying, you need to see that as an opportunity to be a living sacrifice. And then in verse 50, he continues, for salt is good, he says. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Salt is a preservative. It's also a seasoning. 
We know from Jesus' teaching from the gospel that disciples are salt and light. Disciples are preservatives that hold back the onrushing decay of a fallen world. Disciples are uh, uh, seasoning that portrays the good life that Jesus came to offer. What Jesus is saying is, if you don't endure trials and if you don't endure suffering as a faithful disciple, then you'll be unsalty salt. You'll be just like the world around you. If grumbling and complaining is your default when you struggle, you'll be just like the unbeliever. If bitterness and strife is your default, you'll be just like the unbeliever. Jesus is saying, maintain the purity of your witness as you suffer. We know that salt doesn't lose its saltiness. Sodium chloride doesn't unsodium. But the salt that was around the Dead Sea could lose its saltiness. And so the disciples were very familiar with this. And elsewhere, Jesus says that salt that loses its saltiness isn't even good enough for the manure pile. You just throw it out and don't do anything with it. So Jesus' question is designed to jog the disciples' memory back to just what he said about going to hell to teach them that if you lose your saltiness, it means you never were salty in the first place. If you lose your Christianness, it means you never were a Christian in the first place. If you lose your discipliness, it means you never were a disciple in the first place. Can you imagine being the disciples sitting in Peter's house right now? I mean, if this were me, I'm on the floor weeping. But do you know what? That's exactly where you should be. Because it's the humble that Jesus looks upon. It's the humble who find forgiveness. It's the humble who will stumble in a certain way. But when they do, they'll cling to Jesus. It's the proud who stumbles and says, I'm done. So Jesus then gives two commands about what this should look like. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Bear your Christian witness. Have salt in yourselves. Be the aroma of life to those who are living and the aroma of death to those who are perishing. Be seasoned with the gospel of Jesus Christ in your character, in your conduct, and in your speech. And be at peace with one another. Why does he say be at peace with one another? Well, what had John just done? John had just stirred up strife with another Christian. And Jesus is wagging the finger saying, John, don't do that. Because if you stir up strife with another Christian... You're saying to the world that the, son, that the Father has not sent the Son. What does Jesus say is, is a genuine mark of discipleship in the church? If you love one another, you will be my disciples. When you love one another, then you will prove that the Father has sent the Son. Christian love manifests itself in Christian peace. So how do we do that? We have to get our eyes off of ourselves and keep our eyes singularly focused on Jesus Christ. As soon as you take your eye off Jesus and the mission of making disciples, you begin to set yourself up to stir up strife with other believers. As soon as you start demanding your own rights or your own way, You have turned away from the Savior who says, no, you don't get to do that. The Savior who calls you to sacrifice yourself, to take up your cross, and to follow him. Jesus takes peace within his body, deadly serious. But if we keep our eyes on Jesus then we will be so fixated with him. 
we will be so captured by his love for us that we will then exude that love toward others. This is hard, isn't it? This is hard. Why would Jesus make such a demand on us? Because it's exactly what he did for us. No one has ever sinned against you worse than you've sinned against Jesus. I don't care what the sin is. I don't care how much the sin is. No one has ever sinned against you more than you have sinned against Jesus. And if he could take on flesh, live a righteous life, bear your sin on the cross, rise from the grave also that you could have life, can't we bear with one another? It's the one who forgets about Jesus that can't bear with one another. Don't forget about Jesus. Don't forget. Peter summarizes this entire point at the end, toward the end of 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 19, he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Suffering is not an excuse for sin. Suffering is not an excuse for doing evil. Suffering is an opportunity to show that Jesus is alive, Jesus makes a difference, and Jesus helps his little ones walk in faithfulness to him. It's estimated by experts that 20% of all artwork on display in major museums is most likely a forgery. It's estimated that within a hundred years or so, just as history has shown, we will discover those forgeries and realize that they were never the real thing in the first place. You have to wonder how many people have been mesmerized by a work of art that was only a copy of the real thing. You have to wonder how many people have professed to be Christians and yet they were a forgery. They were a counterfeit. Do you have a deep concern for the souls of other Christians? Don't answer that too quickly. Think about the way you speak to them and think about them and deal with them and talk to them and love them and serve them. Do you have a serious commitment to killing your sin? That even if, this is silly I know, but even if it was your house that caused you to sin, you'd you'd get rid of it immediately. That there's nothing more precious to you than Jesus. And therefore you'd get rid of it, no matter what the cost. And do you bear the sufferings of Christ and still do good in the midst of it? If you do, then you are an authentic disciple. If you struggle and yet desire to, then most likely you too are an authentic disciple. Because the reality is, only Jesus gets 100 out of 100. But if you believe in that Jesus, you should see an increasing of fruit in your life in those particular areas. We do well to test ourselves to make sure that we are not forgeries or counterfeits, but we are in fact the real thing as we look to the real Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy to forgive sinners like us. Lord, we confess that there is nothing good inside of us. And if anyone here, <clears throat> if anyone here thinks that, even now, Lord, open their eyes to the truth. We confess that there's nothing good inside of us, but we confess there's nothing evil in you. And yet when you came to the world, the world treated you as if there was everything evil about you. 
But we know that you did that for us so that our sin would be forgiven as we live a lifestyle of repentance and live a lifestyle of believing the gospel. Lord, you gave us some hard words to chew on today. I pray that it would lead to a godly grief that leads to repentance and not a worldly grief that leads to death. You alone are the great shepherd. Shepherd us now by your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.